I'm going to ask you to uh, open up your Bibles to Mark 7. And our passage today is uh, starting at verse 24 all the way to verse 37. So again, open your Bibles to Mark 7. And we'll, uh, I'll read 24 onwards. So please stand with me as we read God's word. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be open. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. Just the other day, I uh, went to CAA, and I, I have a Garmin to use for my travels, but I thought I might as well go to CAA. I have a membership, got a trip tick. I don't know if you guys have ever had these before. Uh, but I went there, and it's kind of a, an unusual thing to go to the counter and say, I only know two places that I'm going for sure, and the rest is sort of up in the air, and then making a plan together about where that might be. Um, so I'm looking forward to the journey in front of me. I make that connection, because if you look at the little map that I put on the notes today, um, it's an odd route that Jesus took. We're not exactly sure when he went, if he knew where he was going. We knew that he had uh, rest in mind. But uh, Matthew tells us that uh, Jesus went to Tyre, which was known to be a wicked city. In the times of David, it was uh, kind of a friendly place for them, but over the years it had become a wicked place. Matthew says that Jesus went to Tyre, and after that he went back to the Sea of Galilee. Mark says that he went to Tyre and to the city of Sidon, and then he went back to Galilee through the Decapolis. That, that would be like saying that Mark would say, or Matthew would say that, well, I want to go from Winnipeg to Fargo and then back to Winnipeg. And Mark is saying that I'll go to Fargo and then in order to come back home, I'll go through Minneapolis. Right? It's, it's, it's kind of a weird route. And uh, so it's, it's uh, just a, a time where we look at it and say, wow, where did Jesus go? Why did he want this kind of time? What was he doing with that? The trip was maybe about 120 miles long, and we're not sure, but he might have taken up to eight months to do these travels, which is a significant amount of time. Uh, as, you met, as you know, he'd be walking for the most part. So why would Jesus need to take this kind of time, and why would he go on this route? 
Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that he needed rest and solitude. Uh, We'd already seen in in Mark 4 that Jesus was tired from ministry. He gets on the boat, and while the boat's being tossed in the sea, he's sleeping and he's resting. And we know that from last week, too, that Mark was in, or Jesus was in a situation where he was constantly being battered by accusations of the Pharisees. There were constantly people who were trying to uh, put him down to, to speak against him. And uh, one of the reasons that's clear is that he just wanted to go away, and this passage says he wanted some time to be private. He needed time to be alone. Um, There's a saying that says, when we don't have solitude, we begin to crave isolation. Uh, I I was wondering for Jesus, when he went here, if he was also thinking about his disciples, knowing that the life, the, the ministry was so busy and his disciples were so caught up in stuff, that he might have been concerned for them too, that if they didn't get time just alone, time to rest, that all of a sudden, instead of wanting to help serve people, they just might want to be isolated from them. They might say, that's enough. I, I just want to be away from everybody. And so it's important to have times of solitude so we're prepared to enter into the world and to live for God-loving people. I think that's part of what Jesus wanted too, is just time with his disciples. Uh, Jesus' teaching of his disciples, the training of them, wasn't primarily that they sit down and they went through the Old Testament and that Jesus would expound scripture to them. He spent time with them. It was life on life. He wanted his disciples to see his life in action. He wanted to see his life as he was serving others, but I think he also just wanted his disciples to see what his life was like when he was resting. When there wasn't anything on the agenda that needed to be done, who is Jesus when he's just walking with his Father? And that's a very important thing for us. If we want to know what it means to become a disciple of Christ, we need to spend time with him, not just learning about him, not just doing things for him, God is more concerned that we're doing things with him, that we're spending time with him. And uh, I think this trip allowed Jesus to have that kind of time with his disciples. Imagine he waited 30 years before going into the ministry, right? As far as going, and, and then he had three years where it was really intense. And from this passage, which doesn't even say much about how much time, we're estimating eight months of three years. We hardly know anything about what Jesus was doing except that he was alone and that his disciples were with him. Does that tell you something about how God values time with us? How he wants us to be abiding in him and growing in our relationship with him by being with him. I think the third need that Jesus had in in going was just to get away from the enemies. Last week, again, we heard about how the Pharisees were saying, well, you know, they're just, they're arguing about what's clean and unclean. The passage right after this, again, he gets back into Galilee, and as soon as he gets there, he's hit with opposition. I think time, Jesus just wanted time where he, he wasn't battered, and he could get his mind set on what was coming next, that his heart and his soul could be ready for the end of the mission that God had for him while he's here on earth. And this opens the door for us to observe what Mark's motive is for sharing this incident in the Bible. Uh, Realize that Luke, John don't mention it at all. Matthew has a very short version of it. Mark's motive was that he was writing to the Gentiles. So a Gentile is anyone who's not born a Jew. So for most of us, that includes us. We would be considered Gentiles, people who are not of the chosen people. And so he's writing to a Gentile audience. And I think one of the things he wanted his audience to know is that while Jesus was here, he spent significant amount of time in the Gentile territory, not just walking through the land, but spending time with people. Um, 
I'm going to just read you uh, Matthew, Mark 7, 15 and 19. This was from last week. Um, this is where the argument was about what's clean and unclean. And it more or less, and it says, Jesus says to the people, Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing, nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. So we come from the context of hearing a very significant statement that all food is clean. Now remember that all throughout the Old Testament, Jesus, God has said that there's food that's clean and unclean and you need to observe that. That's very important. And now Jesus is saying all food is clean. That's a significant change. And I believe what Mark is trying to say now by having Jesus going into this Gentile territory, which would not be where most Jews would want to go, He's saying, he's starting to, to get the people ready to understand that all people are clean. That doesn't mean that they're saved. It doesn't mean that they're going to heaven. But from a ritual standpoint, that all food is clean and all people are clean. And he's getting people prepared because he knows someday the mission of the church would be to reach the Gentiles. And they might have a hard time receiving that because as Jews, they've always been taught, we're the chosen people. We need to stand firm together and, and the Gentiles are our enemies. And now he knows that the Gentiles, that he's preparing the church to say, in time, your mission is the Gentiles. And it's, you've got good standing. Jesus has already gone there. He's been among them. And this is a sign for you that that's okay to go in that direction and share the good news with them. So that would be the mission of the disciples, not of Jesus. So what is Jesus' mission? And this is the next point. Um, when we read this first passage where Jesus is talking to the woman, most of us, I think, have something in our spirit that makes us a little bit upset. It doesn't seem just. It doesn't seem compassionate the way that he speaks with this woman. Uh, Mark says that she begged Jesus to, to answer her request. In the Greek, it has the sense of she kept on begging him. So that would imply that there was a moment of time. It wasn't just one ask and Jesus said this to her. She was asking and asking and, and Jesus didn't reply right away. Matthew bluntly tells us that he didn't respond. That seems harsh, doesn't it? If that's the way you were treated by any friend, wouldn't that seem harsh? Um, I, I think that the opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference. It's easier to experience the hatred of someone than to experience that they don't seem to care that you exist. And silence does that, right? Like when you're just ignoring someone, that, that's hurtful to think that you don't exist. And that's what the sense is, at least for me when I read this. So the question that comes to mind for me is, is Jesus ever unloving to those who seek him? And uh, the answer that I have to say is sometimes it definitely feels that way. There's times where it feels like God is unloving. Uh, the Bible says in Proverbs, it says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. I'm sure all of you have at times been hoping for something from the Lord, and he defers it, and he defers it, and your heart gets tired. Your spirit feels crushed, and you wonder if God cares. I'm sure that's the reality for many of us in our walk with God at times. And I don't know what God's timing is. I just know that it's perfect. The Bible also tells us that God judges motives. So when I ask for things, he also knows what my motive is in asking. Does it have anything to do with him? Is it all about me? 
He knows if what he gives me is going to actually help me draw closer to him or farther away. Again, what I sometimes think of a blessing that this would be great to have in life, he knows that if he gives it to me, it would actually cause me to go farther away. He knows that other times things that I would never want happen to me or any, anybody else, he knows that if he allows that to happen, it will actually draw me closer to him. His perspective is so much different than ours. His ways are so far above ours. So the main thing that I can answer is that Jesus is love. There's nothing about Jesus that's unloving. Jesus is the source of love. What we have in this world, what we call love, is a perversion of love. It isn't close to what Jesus says is love. And again, Jesus is love. Whenever I doubt the goodness of God, my mind always goes back to the cross. Because whenever I wonder, Lord, is it possible that this bad thing could happen to me? Is it possible that you don't love me? I just remember what God the Father allowed his son to endure, which wasn't good in any sense of the way as far as pleasurable. But it was in his good will that God would suffer, that Christ would suffer so that we could be saved. And when I see Christ on the cross, then it's a reminder that, Lord, even though I don't understand this period, I don't understand this experience, I do know that this is what you did for me. And I do know that your heart is for me. And I do know that you are a God of love. I put a quote on your notes, and I just read this for you now. Whether we obtain that which we seek for, or whether we obtain it not, let us ever persevere in prayer. And let us give thanks, not only if we obtain, but even if we fail to obtain. For when God denies us anything, it is no less a favor than if he had granted it. For we know not as he does, what is most expedient for us. I can guarantee you that God loves you. For those of us, when we've given our life to Christ, we've entered into a covenant relationship with him, and he desires to see us have an abundant life through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. So whatever you're facing, please know that Jesus loves you. In Mark, the phrase that impacts us the most is actually what comes next. When Jesus says, first, let the children eat all they want, for it's not right to take the children's bread and to toss it to their dogs. The question that I have from this is, are the Gentiles less important than the Jews? Uh, in this passage, uh, Matthew says that when uh, the lady begs, Jesus first says, I was sent only to the sheep of Israel. And then he has this thing. And Mark, he doesn't give us that. So it's a little bit more of a mystery going into this. What does he mean? Well, it was a common saying for Jews to call Gentiles dogs. And not, I don't know if there is a nice way of saying that. Right? And these were dogs. Generally, the word that was used in the Bible is for dogs that were mongrels, dogs that were scavengers. And uh, so this was a, a regular saying. Um, it doesn't make it right, but it does make it something that was used regularly. And um, so when we think of this question, at least for me, are Gentiles less important than the Jews? Uh, I realize that, first of all, uh, answering this question helps us identify the tension that the early church that was made up of Jews faced as they were thinking about sharing the good news to Gentiles. Gentiles, through all their life again, as they were reading the Old Testament, these were the people that as they entered the Promised Land, they were to destroy. This was the enemy. And now they're being told that with the coming of Christ, the revelation has increased, and now we see that grace is extended very intentionally to the Gentiles. 
And, and the church would have been struggling with that. The reason that the Jews are important is because of the covenant relationship that they were in with God. Um, this might be clear to all of you, but just to, to make sure, Jesus needed to be born. So for Jesus to come into this world, he needed to be born into a race. He didn't just pop on the scene one day. Oh, there's a nice baby by the synagogue door. Right? Jesus needed to be born into a race. And so how did God choose which race of people it would be? The Bible tells us that it started with Abraham. It started with a man who had faith in God to go on a journey where he didn't even know where it would take him. And God made a covenant with Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I am going to give you more descendants than there are stars in the sky or sands on the seashore. That's how I'm going to bless you. And through you, I am going to bless all nations. So right here we know that through Abraham, there's going to come the, the coming of Christ. That will be the chosen people. But right from the get-go, the idea is that why is it going to be one nation? Because eventually I can bless all nations. Because when Christ comes, the door is open for all. So from Abraham, we get to David. We get to King David. And God makes a covenant with him as well, saying that there will always be a king from your line on the throne. And again, that points to Jesus. So when Jesus came to this world, he had a specific mission. It wasn't just to go and heal and show that God is kind and generous. It was to die for us and then to be risen again. He had a mission, and that was his core focus. And we need to realize that in this interaction with the woman. We also need to realize that the words he said, however they were said, it, it, it was in regards to a state that was only temporary, that once he died and once he rose again, the good news would be freely shared with all. Jesus would not be sent to the Gentile nation in the same way that his disciples would be. At the end of Mark, Mark 16, verse 15, we read this, that Jesus said to them, Go into the world and preach the good news to all creation. God, Jesus wanted everybody to know him, but there was a time frame that had to happen. And until he died and rose again, that offer was still taking place in the chosen people. He needed to finish his mission that God had given him. The principle that we see both in Jesus' life, the disciples' life, and in the early church is to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. On the surface, Jesus' words may seem harsh and unsympathetic, but the woman, she recognized them as a wide-open door to God's throne. And that's what import what's important, is how the woman responded, not how we respond when we read the text. So let's turn our attention to the woman and uh, what I've entitled crumb-eating faith. I, I don't think that uh, she probably had a lot of first-hand knowledge about Jesus. Uh, what we do know from earlier on in Mark is that a number of people from this vicinity had come down to the Sea of Galilee. They had experienced uh, Jesus in his miracles and his teaching, and then they'd come back home. So probably her reliance, uh, her information about Jesus came through these neighbors that came back, friends that came back. And one of the things we see about her faith is that it's urgent. The Bible says, again, uh, this is Mark 7 right at the beginning, that in fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. She, she had an urgent need. She was a parent who loved her child and could do nothing to help her. A doctor wouldn't help because this wasn't sickness. This was demon possession. And she didn't know what to do. She was yearning for help. 
And so she did what she thought was best. The only thing she could think of to do was to come to this man who she heard many miraculous things about. And she went and she knelt at the feet of Jesus. And that's the second thing about her faith, is that she was humble. She fell at his feet. We don't use our body much in worship. Just an observation that's probably, that's maybe because I'm Mennonite, maybe it's overall in North America, but, but there's something powerful when we learn to use our body in submission. Uh, it helps us to, rem- to remember that God is above us and we are humbly at his feet. Uh, that's one of the reasons why sometimes people raise their hands. This was kneeling down, bowing down. We have to remember that in Philippians 2.10, it says that someday all people will bow their knee to God. In some way, it's helpful when we use our body to teach us submission. Um, if you have stopped kneeling at your bed since you were a child, I'd suggest that from time to time you find times to kneel and allow that just to get your heart into the right place that when we approach God, we are approaching him from a standpoint of submission and dependence. Um, another uh, word that comes up in the Bible that we don't talk about much is just the word prostrate, falling prostrate at the feet of Jesus. That's, that's simply, if you can imagine someone kind of doing a spread eagle on the floor and just saying, uh, I surrender everything. Um, I remember reading that in the Bible and thinking that that was just kind of odd. Why would people do that? And one time in my studies... I remember just being so overwhelmed. I, I, I just, I had done a lot of papers and I thought everything had gone well. Actually, the papers were fine, but I still had one left to do and I was just at my wit's end. I had just been studying all the time and I was, I felt done. And I remember just putting my notes on the floor and saying, Lord, I don't even know if this is right to do or not. And I just, I just, knelt, I, I just went prostrate on the floor and said, Lord, I surrender everything to you. I'm doing this because I want to honor you and I need your help. Please give me wisdom for today. And, and I remember slugging through, and I remember that the biggest help was just that sense of peace that came over me when I knew that things were submitted to God and that I wasn't just trying to do it in my own strength. This is what the woman gives us a picture of. Lord, I need your help. And she kneels at his feet. She's also persistent. We mentioned already that the word she begged has the idea of she kept on begging. She didn't give up. She kept asking. This reminds me of the story in Luke of the persistent widow. Uh, This is found in Luke 18. I'll just quickly read it to you. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so she won't eventually wear me out by her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? God tells us that we need to be persistent in our prayers. And uh, this situation was relying on justice, and, and here she was looking for deliverance. How else could her daughter be delivered except God take the demon away from her daughter? There was nothing that she could do. And her persistence after Jesus' comment suggests that Jesus in some way was encouraging her. 
I don't know how you'd hear something about being called a dog in a way that would be at all encouraging. Some people say that maybe Jesus said that phrase very sarcastically. Maybe he said it with a, with a tone of um, uh, teasing. Uh, one thing that we know for sure is that in the saying, the word dog, when, the, when Jews would say it about Gentiles, the Greek word for dog was talking about mongrels, about stray dogs on the street. And the word that Jesus chose was significantly different than that. It's a word that talks about kind of the household pet or the puppies. Uh, it still, I don't think, would be a, a pleasing thing to be called, but it definitely showed a different sense of intimacy that was at least hinted at. And the woman caught that. I don't think so much about the dog. She caught the word first. First, let me go to the, Gentile, to the Jews, and then, and then the Gentiles can be served. I'll read that again. I, I didn't read it well. <laughs> let me go back here. He said, it is not right. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Um, she was attentive and responsive. She heard that word first, and she realized that there was a priority to God's mission, but that that priority of God's mission was not going to leave out the Gentiles. She caught that part. She heard the priority. And the irony here is that Jesus, all the time, was trying to help his disciples hear. He, was, he said to them so many times, are you dull? Don't you understand the miracle that I did with the bread? Don't you understand this? And so all this time he works with the disciples and the Bible says that they're dull. They're slow to get what Jesus is getting at. Here he has one brief interaction with this woman and this woman immediately understands that he has a mission that he has to complete. She understands and she submits to it and she's responsive to it. And I don't know what her response sounded like. Maybe it sounded like witty banter. Maybe it sounded like desperation. But she comes and she says, she says to the Lord, Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So, Lord, that might be true. Maybe I'm not a child. Maybe I can't sit at your table. I'm not claiming I deserve that. But, Lord, isn't there even crumbs that the dogs eat? Can I get that crumb? Can I get that help from you now? And Jesus was honored by that response. He's honored when we're humble. This is a key requirement of discipleship. And this is hard for, it was hard for the disciples to learn. It was hard for us to learn. Can you imagine? Later on in Mark, we learn that the, the disciples have trouble entering the kingdom as little children. And here this woman was willing and joyful to enter the kingdom as a dog. She was that humble, and that pleased the Lord. The last thing to say about her faith is that she was trusting. After Jesus uh, told her, he said, For such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. It says right then, she went home, found her child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. She came to God in faith, and as soon as he responded, she went home in faith. She didn't question, question him, she didn't beg for proof, she just went home. And again, remember that she's meeting Jesus on the other side of the cross. He hadn't been to the cross. He hadn't died and risen again. Uh, her experience of Christ is different than how we experience Christ as far as knowing that we have a saving relationship with him and the Holy Spirit living within us. She did not have the ultimate revelation of God's love and power towards us that we have. So just one thing to, to think about is before we go into the next section is just thinking about the compassion of the Lord. Can you imagine that just a crumb cast out a demon and gave this woman 
exactly what she needed as far as grace. Just a crumb of his grace. And we're invited to sit at the table. The Bible says that the Lord will come in and eat with us and sup with us. We're invited to a full meal with the Lord. This is just a picture of a crumb of his grace and compassion. The question that I wrote on your sheet for, for further reflection is, what causes you to come to Christ? What causes you to come to Christ? And when you come to him, how do you approach him? Two important things that I hope you will be able to think about over the coming days. Well, let's move on to the the next part of the passage. And this is entitled, Jesus, the one who does everything well. This episode is unique in Mark's gospel. Uh, Matthew says that after this interaction with the woman, that Jesus headed back to the vicinity of the Sea of Galilee, and that he healed many people among the multitudes. He healed the lame, the blind, the deaf. Mark says that Jesus stayed in Galilee a little longer, and he highlights the personal nature of this private healing in the Decapolis. And so it's a a fairly significant change again from saying Jesus just healing in the multitudes and here's a private interaction with Jesus from a person who lives in the area of the Decapolis, most likely a Gentile. The key verse that we've chosen for this week is Mark 7, verse 37. It says, People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. These two phrases that were uttered uh, refers to two texts, or at least makes us think of two texts that are found in the Old Testament. And the first one is Genesis 1, verse 31. And this is where we are told that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. When God created the world, everything was perfect. There wasn't anything bad about it. He saw it, and he said, this is good. But then eventually enters sin, And the world comes under bondage. People's lives become perverted, distraught. Sin entered in and our relationship with God was broken. And our relationship with the world and other people was strained. So that was the first passage. When it says he has done everything well, refers to Genesis 1 verse 31. And then of course he says he even makes the deaf to hear and the mute speak. That refers to Isaiah 35 verses 5 to 6. And here we read, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. What Mark is doing in here is he's intentionally pointing us to the promise that someday creation will be restored. He hints that the promised renewal began with Jesus Christ. So what God began in perfection He's pointing that someday it's going to be back to that. Jesus is going to create everything new. And the surprise that Mark has for us is that this revelation is given to us in the Gentile territory, a territory where, again, most Jews wouldn't tread. And he says, surprise, Jesus is going to give this great information. People are going to start understanding this, that the earth will be renewed, that people can be restored to God. He gives it to them in one of the least likely places a territory that for most people would consider enemy territory. And the beautiful thing is the Gentiles will be included in the renewal plan. And again, for us, for most of us, that means us. I'm not a Jew. I'm very happy when I hear this story. I'm very happy when God's grace is going to expand past the chosen people, past the Jewish people, to include me. I hope you are too. (laughs) That's really good news for us. 
So here are just a few key points from this story, this interaction with the man that Jesus met. Uh, first of all, the man's infirmities were not related to the, to the demonic. This was sickness. Uh, in our world, I don't know how we discern. I, I honestly don't know that. I don't have the gift of discernment. But the Bible over and over again shows that sometimes sickness is just due to sin in the world. But sometimes ailments are demonic. And there's two different approaches to how you deal with those things. And we need Jesus' wisdom and, know, and to, to know which is which. But the Bible says here that this was not the demonic. This was sickness. Um, the other thing is Jesus has a, a ritual, right? He, he, he goes, rituals are maybe not the right word, but he goes and he, he touches the ear, he spits, and he touches the tongue, right? Uh, if you notice, when you read throughout the Bible, you notice Jesus never does the same thing twice or not often, not that there's a pattern that you say, oh, this is how I should do it because uh, that's not the way Jesus works. Uh, he says, it's not about the ritual, there's nothing magical about my putting the ear in his, my finger in his ear or the spit on his tongue. There's nothing mystical about that part. Uh, he, he doesn't do it for himself. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't do it because he needs it. He does it because the man needs it. Can you imagine? Here's a man who probably, from what we can tell, lost his speech sometime after, lost his hearing sometime after birth. He probably was able to hear for a while. It says that he couldn't speak clearly. So he had probably at some point been able to listen, learn to speak, and then that, that ability was gone. Uh, it must be awfully hard not to be able to hear. You, you can't hear when people are talking to you. You don't know how to respond. I think often people probably treat you like you're not as smart as you are because they don't realize that you're deaf at first, right? He, he can't hear those things. And then he can't express himself. His mouth, whatever the impediment was, he couldn't speak plainly to people. That must be an awfully difficult thing. And, and Jesus, in compassion, does not make a spectacle of this man. The crowds, people bring him to be healed. And what does Jesus do? Instead of just doing it there on the spot, he intentionally takes the man away in private. And he shows compassion. And he says, he, 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 he just kind of symbolizes, I'm going to fix your ears. I'm going to fix your mouth. And the man can anticipate what God's about to do, what Jesus is about to do. It's a beautiful act of intimacy. We have a God who is very compassionate. And in the process of this, the Bible tells us that Jesus looked up to heaven. And that's a sign of, of again, just looking to, to God for the authority and the power to heal. And he had a deep sigh, and he said to him, Athatha. The word for deep sigh is related to the word that Paul uses in Romans 8, verse 26. And this is where he says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. So when it says that Jesus groaned, it's the same word. It's related to the word that Paul used about the Spirit, how he groans for us when we can't even express what we need. But God does. Well, this miracle has implications for us today when we think of the analogy or the connection to our spiritual deafness and, and our other spiritual infirmities, our inability to speak well about God. Jesus' groaning words, be open, represent the deepest hope for the gospel, that you and I might truly hear the good news and eventually clearly speak the good news. We might not have that physical ailment, 
but without Christ, we definitely have that spiritual ailment. We need to always rely on Christ to open our ears so that we can clearly hear what God is telling us about himself and how he wants us to live for him. And whatever he tells us about himself, he will also open our mouth so that we can declare the goodness of God. There is nothing in your life that God has given you that he means for you to keep just to yourself. Everything is meant to bless others by telling them about the good news of God. That's the compassion that God ultimately shows us. He shows us himself. He lets us hear who he is. He lets us speak his praises and allows us to tell others who he is. God is very compassionate. And I'm very thankful that we have the opportunity to serve him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to be closing in a song right away. And as they come up, I just want to just voice the other question that's on your sheet. Are we a compassionate people? How is this evident in our daily lives? So what grace, what mercy has God shown you that God would say, I want this to be displayed in your life towards others? The grace you have received, show to others. The forgiveness that you have received, show to others. The blessings, whatever it is, God says, I've given to you so that you can give to others. You never give out of your poverty. You never give out of your own wealth. You always give out of what God has given you. So this week as we go out, let's remember that God wants us to be a compassionate people. He wants us to look for the good that we can do and to do it. And uh, with that, let's uh, stand and uh, we'll sing the song of praise together.